He's defending how he came to the Thessalonians and his motive for coming. And the reason he's defending himself is not because of what the people think of him, uh, but, but rather for the gospel's sake. You see, when Paul and Silas came to Thessalonica, Paul preached for three Sabbaths in the synagogue. Some Jews were saved and some Gentiles were saved. But the unregenerated Jews uh, became envious of Paul's success and they started an uprising against him and ran out of town. And the Paul had really only been there maybe a month or two uh, with these new converts. Uh, and Paul's absence, uh, both the unsaved Jews and Gentiles started slandering Paul and started slandering his gospel and the methods that he used and his motives to these young and new Thessalonian converts. Right? They were undermining his authority. Uh, they were discrediting him, saying things like, well, Paul was sincere and he had your best interest at heart. He would never run away. He would never have left you south. He would never run out of town. How is he doing in Berea anyway? And then there is an informant, but you are here without his apostolic leadership. He's just one more of those prophecy teachers who, who travels in a nation way. He's a, he's a charlatan. He's in it for himself. See what he can get from you, like money and prestige and sex and power and so on. And all you have to do is read these four verses and you can hear the charges they go against him. He said that his coming to Thessalonica was in vain. It was of no profit, to which Paul says it was. They say his boldness was man-centered, to which Paul says no, it was in God and his gospel. They accuse him of error, uncleanness, and deceit, using flattering words for his own agreement. They say he sought the glory of men. They care about the Thessalonians, that he was a mooch. Mooching off of them. They accuse them of all kinds of improprieties and ill motives. Saying that he had abandoned them, and that he was out to save his souls, and that he really wasn't worried about their souls. And the goal of these opponents was to create distrust uh, of the gospel messengers so that they would basically eradicate uh, the message when the message died. Well, Paul defends his conduct. And again, it's not because Paul cares about what people think about him, but rather that the faith of these young believers would not be shaken. Paul was not ignorant, he said, of Satan's devices. And giving his defense, what Paul is giving them and us, uh, is what a godly minister should look like. Right? It's what spiritual leadership should look like. And in verses 1 and 2, the first characteristic of what that should be is boldness. Boldness. And bold doesn't mean loud, doesn't mean abrasive, it doesn't mean in your face. No, what bold means is confidence, assurance, to speak freely, to speak unhindered. This word is used nine times in the New Testament, uh, and it's always used for speaking the gospel. Right? Throughout the book of Acts, we see the apostles and others speaking the word of God boldly. Jesus spoke boldly and unashamedly. In John 7, the Jewish leaders said, if anyone saw Jesus come to the feast, they should tell them because they wanted to kill him. But Jesus shows up, and he teaches the people in the temple. And then we read in verses 26 and 27, now some of them from Jerusalem said, is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. So he goes into the heart of the fire, and he preaches the gospel. John 8, 44, it tells the unbelieving Jews, you are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. That's bold, right? 
Matthew 23, he woes the scribes and Pharisees seven times of being religious hypocrites and misleading the people. That's bold. John the Baptist said to Herod, it was sinful for him and not lawful for him to have his brother's wife. That's bold. And all ministers of the gospel must be bold to speak the truth. They can't be wishy-washy on the truth. They can't be apologetic for the truth because they because they're the, they're the ministers of it, right? They can't be inhibited or hold back or buckle under pressure. The Puritan, William Grinnell, said this. He said, if men be bold to sin, ministers must be bold to reprove. So a gospel minister must be bold, as all Christians should be bold, to declare and defend the truth. Paul said in 2 Timothy 1.7 that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, and of love and of a sound mind. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3, 12, concerning the glory to come, he said, since we have such hope, that's of Christ coming again, we use great boldness of speech. Well, what I'd like to do this morning in a sermon titled Holy Boldness is give you four realities or four truisms of holy boldness as we see in verses one and two. And they are, holy boldness has a purpose, Holy boldness brings adversity. Holy boldness is in God and his gospel. And finally, holy boldness is unshakable. So let's look at holy boldness has a purpose. We'll see that in verse 1. For you yourselves know, Paul says, that our coming to you was not in vain. Now, by purpose, I mean it was fruitful. It has an aim, uh, and it is bold to fulfill that aim. Or as Paul says, it is not in vain. And Paul starts his defense by saying, for you yourselves know brethren. And what he's appealing to is what they already know to be true. Uh, And Paul has said they know something in verses 1, 2, 5, and 11 of this chapter. Uh, And what they know is, is his approach and his character and his ministry firsthand. He said back in chapter 1, verse 5, he says, you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. So their experience with Paul it is not what his opponents are claiming. The Thessalonians know that Paul's coming to them brought about a radical change in their lives. They know that their world was turned upside down for the better. They know that Paul was a man who had a one-track mind, and that was for the glory of God. And what glorified God was the saving of sinners and in raising them up. So the Thessalonian saints knew Paul's coming to them was not in vain. And vain means empty-handed, of no purpose, fruitless, of no value. It literally means an empty vessel. So basically, what they're saying is you have nothing to show for it. Nothing to show for it. Paul's accusers are saying nothing good came from Paul's time with the Thessalonians. It was a waste of time. They have have nothing to show for his time with them. Uh, and and, And they're accusing him of that. And there are indeed many things in life that are vain. And there are many things in life that are a waste of time, are they not? How about trusting in wealth? How about trusting in your own abilities or your knowledge or maybe the economy? Psalm 39.6 says, It is a vain thing to trust in or to amass riches. It's also a vain thing to trust in science for the answers, answers to life or government for protection. Psalm 33.17 says, A horse is vain, a vain hope for safety. Neither shall it deliver any by its great strength. 
It is a vain thing to try to create a life of ease and comfort or to trust in the educational system to teach you and your family what really matters in life. It is a vain thing to try to find happiness in another person or in a job or in a hobby or in a home. It is a vain thing to trust in your religious observances or affiliation or denomination or your good deeds to find or to keep favor with God. And sadly, multitudes of people are going through the religious motions to be saved and secure their spot in heaven. But I'm telling you, that is in vain. It is also vain for churches to put on glitzy and glamorous services to stir up the emotions of people speaking great swelling words instead of presenting the glorious gospel. Listen, we don't need theatrics. What we need is sound theology. We don't need a centrally driven church. We need a spirit-driven church. Psalm 127.1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. So it's a vain thing to try to build uh, the church in man's power or in man's wisdom or in human technique or strategies. It's a vain thing. And this is not how Paul came to the Thessalonians or to anyone else. He didn't come with deceit. He didn't come with flattery or a cloak of covetousness or with a view to vainglory. And unfortunately, many were and are preaching a man-centered gospel which can bear no fruit because it's a gospel that has no power. But Paul's gospel, he tells us, was the gospel of God in verse 2, and it came in the power of God. And it changed the hearts of Jews and Gentiles and made them the one new man in Christ. So Paul didn't bring vain words, words that make people feel good, nor did he speak about philosophy or theory or the commandments of men. He didn't deal with the, 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 the political climate. He knew what it was, of course. But he brought them the sound words, the wholesome words of God. He warned the saints in Ephesians 5, verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, and empty words are vain words. They're useless words. So Paul knew that wherever the word of God went out in boldness and in the power of the Spirit, it was not in vain. Whether God saved just a few people like in Athens or many people like in Corinth or Thessalonica, he knew that the gospel was the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. So Paul's ministry in Thessalonica may have been short and it may have been abrupt, but it was forceful and fruitful and it was not in vain. And the proof is in the pudding because we read in chapter 1 about the work of faith, the labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope of the, of, the, of the saints in Thessalonica and how the gospel sounded forth all over Greece and even beyond by these saints. So it was not in vain. And brothers and sisters, don't ever see what you do for the Lord as in vain. Don't. Don't think the time you invest sharing with people or discipling younger saints or helping the lost or praying for them is a waste of time. It is not. Because we can't see what God may be doing behind the scenes, so to speak. We can't see the heart. We can't see what's going on in someone's heart. I remember a couple of years ago, a young lady named Jocelyn Reyes we were street preaching in, by the Queen Center Mall, which probably needs nothing to you, but it's close to us. And this young lady came by, she heard us, stood for like about 30 seconds, took a track and went away. 
Well, she went home and she put that track on her night table and it stayed there for a year. And then after a year or so, she said she picked it up and read it and decided to come to church. Six months later, God saved her. And so we don't have a clue how God will use our witness. We just don't. And, and there, are, there are many other stories of God using ordinary people like you and I doing ordinary everyday things in life to draw others to himself. Amen? So again, we don't have a clue how God will use our witness or our prayers or our acts of love in the lives of others. But if we are bold to proclaim the truth, he will. And it will not be in vain. Just as Paul said, his being in a Roman prison was not in vain. So in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 14, the reason he writes the Philippians is because they believe now that the great apostle Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, he's holed up. And he'll be in prison for two years in Rome. And now the gospel's come to a standstill. So they think. The church planter, right? The great evangelist. All of a sudden, he's holed up. And so they're worried that this is a, a standstill, if you will. And here's what he says to them. He goes, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me, which now he's in prison, of course, have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. They've turned out for the furtherance of the gospel so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ and most of the brethren in the Lord having become confident by my chains are much more bold to speak the word without fear. The gospel is going out. I've, I, I'm, the gospel has now reached the heart of the Roman Empire and he'll end that letter by saying that the saints... He's greeting saints back and forth. He says, the saints in Caesar's household greet you. Some of those, some of those, those guards he was chained to, God saved some of them, and some in Caesar's household. So now the gospel has gone out to the, to, to the center of the world, if you will, the power source of the world. Why? Paul was chained for two years. So don't think that my time here is in vain. Amen. So we see holy boldness has a purpose. Secondly, it brings adversity. Brings adversity. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know. Listen, when you boldly and unapologetically share the gospel, you will have adversity. You're going to rub some people the wrong way. Uh, and, and you will have some who will want to come against you. Listen, Jesus boldly preached the gospel. He faithfully shared the truth. And the Jews, and particularly the religious establishment, they came very hard against him. The one who was the most holy man who ever lived, the one who had not an ounce of ill in his heart toward any man who only loved all men, yet he was vehemently opposed by men. He told the disciples in John 15, if the world hates you, you know you know it hated me before it hated you. He told his brothers in John 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Why? Because I testify of it that its works are evil. I tell it the truth. He said in John 15, 25, they have hated me without a cause. And they called him all kinds of unkind things. They called him a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. They said he was born of fornication, that he had a demon that he got his power from Satan and that he was a deceiver. So they were his enemies and they hated him. And they hated him for showing them that they were hypocrites and legalists. Hated that. 
But guess what? Paul had great adversity as well because of the gospel. And he was persecuted in just about every city he went into because the gospel is offensive to natural man. Natural man doesn't want to hear about their sin problem or they don't want to hear about judgment for sin and that there's a place called hell. Just last Monday, 4th of July, I was sharing with some guy in a park. We went to a park as a church. And this, this young man could not believe that God would send anybody to hell. He would judge anybody because he loves everybody. The idea that, that God was holy and just, just he couldn't fathom that. just didn't make sense in his mind. And men don't like that the only way to heaven is through Christ. It's very narrow. Or, or the idea of having to repent of their sins and to surrender to Christ. You see, the idea of humility repulses men. We, by nature, don't like that. We don't like humility. As Jesus said in John 3, 19 and 20, men love darkness and hate the light. Why? Because the light exposes sin. So the gospel is an abrasive message. It strips man of every single ounce of his perceived goodness. It strips you down to nothing. It renders them hopeless and helpless of ever making themselves acceptable to God. So you can't boldly share the gospel and not get some kickback. You can't. Remember, Jesus told his disciples in John 10, he says, I'm, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And we know that wolves don't like sheep unless they're eating them. Well, Paul says he had suffered and was spitefully treated at Philippi. And what he's talking about is the persecution he endured in Philippi before he came to Thessalonica. Uh, and when he went to Philippi, a demon-possessed girl, slave girl, uh, who was a fortune teller, kept annoying Paul. And eventually, Paul cast the demon out of her, and because of that, she is no longer a fortune teller anymore. And her owners are furious because she made them a lot of money. And so their golden goose was cooked, uh, and they went on the attack, and they attacked Paul, and they attacked Silas, and they dragged them out before the uh, rulers of the city, and they accused them of disrupting the city. Uh, and the crowd started beating them, and the magistrates had them stripped naked and had them then beaten or flogged with rods. And, and this flogging is, is quite a brutal experience. The early church father, Eusebius, said, uh, speaking of those who were flogged in Smyrna, he said their back was frighteningly lacerated. The Christians in Smyrna were so torn by the scourging that their veins were laid bare and their inner muscles and sinews uh, and their entrails were exposed. All right, in today's language, their veins, their muscles, their tendons, their guts, everything was coming out of their back. Their backs were ripped open and everything was flying out of it. And then we read, they threw them in prison and they put them in stocks. And stocks were another form of torture, uh, if you will, uh, where it was wood that had a bunch of holes in it, pretty far apart, and they would put your legs as far as apart as they could stretch them into these wood stocks and you couldn't move. It would bring about great pain, besides the pain of their sliced open backs. So Paul preaches the gospel in Philippi, and he gets beaten and imprisoned for it. Uh, but then he says that they were spitefully treated. Uh, and spitefully treated means that they were treated shamefully. They were verbally abused, that they be treated harshly. And how they were treated spitefully is that they were publicly stripped naked, and flogged, and that without a hearing or any legal proceedings. And it was against Roman law 
to flog and imprison a Roman citizen without a trial. And both Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. Well, Paul's point in mentioning what happened in Philippi uh, is that after that, they were bold to come to to the Thessalonians and preach the same gospel to them. And here's the thing, he didn't have to go to them. He could have packed up his bags and went back to Tarsus or maybe Antioch. Or he could have taken a sabbatical from sharing the gospel. Right? He, he, or he, he could have decided to go full-time into the tent-making business, which probably would have been a safer venture for him. He probably would have lived longer as well. Or he could have come to the Thessalonians and just toned down the message. Maybe speak to a person here or there, or behind closed doors, instead of going straight smack into the middle of the oven, so to speak, into a synagogue. Or he could have just spoken about God's love. God loves you, man. Right? And he has a wonderful plan for your life. Paul loved them too much. And he cared about their eternal state too much to not come and boldly preach the full counsel of the word of God. You see, for some of us, if we share the gospel and get shot down or hit some adversity, we kind of curl up and we go away. If we share with someone and they, they kind of go berserk on us a little bit, we become gunshot. We don't want to do it again. So maybe the next time we don't speak up or we dance around the gospel a little bit. The point is, if we get roughed up a little for sharing our faith, we might say, that's enough. I'm not cut out for this. You know, let, let the evangelists do that. You got the Mammon brothers and you got Pastor Fry and a few others. Let them, let these guys do it. Why do we got to speak up? But we ought not to be that way. And nor was Paul that way. He went right into Thessalonica with the same exact message that got him beaten to a pulp in Philippi. Think about it. The wounds are probably still still sore. They're probably still oozing, right? And he goes straight into the new place, preaching the same exact message. And he knew it could go south in Thessalonica, and they did hit much adversity. But that didn't stop him. He had only one message, and all men needed to hear that one message. And before God, he was bold to share it. Brothers and sisters, we have only one message. And we need to be bold to share it. And again, if you share the truth, if you share the message of the gospel, people will come against you at times. They'll speak evil of you. They'll try to hurt you financially or maybe socially or maybe try to take you down on social media, maybe even physically. But they so desperately need to hear the truth because they are immersed in lies and they'll be damned in the end because of it. Therefore, be bold to speak up for Christ at school, even though some teachers will have it out for you. Share with your co-workers and your neighbors, even though they will talk behind your back. And if you get beaten down for boldly sharing the gospel, get up and boldly share it somewhere else or with someone else. Amen? So we see holy boldness has a purpose. Secondly, holy boldness brings adversity. And now, third, holy boldness is in God and his gospel. That's the second part of verse 2. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated in Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God 
to speak to you the gospel of God. Well, holy boldness stems not from man or his might, but from God. Paul wasn't bold in himself. He wasn't bold in his great learning. He wasn't bold in his track record. He was bold in God and the one who created and sustains all things and the one who elected saints before the foundation of the world and the one who said, I am always with you even to the end of the age and I will never forsake you. He was bold in the one who was sovereign over all and is the same yesterday and today and forevermore. And he was bold in the Lord because the Lord said, I will build my church, Paul, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So no demon, nor the devil, or death, nor man can stop God's will from being fulfilled. It cannot do it. They cannot keep the gospel from going out to God's elect and being drawn in by it. They could kill the messenger. They cannot kill the message. God will draw in his people. So they can't keep the gospel from going out. And so too, we must be bold in our God. And notice Paul says, our God. Our God. And he says, our God, because he is personally our God. We know him. And we're known by him. And he's the only God. And the reason we can be bold, even in the midst of adversity, is because we're bold in God. We're bold in him. We're bold in who he is. We're bold in what he has done. And we're bold in what he will still do. And we know with him nothing is impossible. Listen, if you're saved today, you know nothing is impossible. He saved you. Could have left you wallowing in your sin, heading down the wide path to destruction. But no, he drew you out. Amen? Nothing is impossible. And he commands us to share his gospel. And we can have confidence that he will use our very frail efforts to fulfill his end. I mean, look how weak we are. We're a ragtag bunch of nobodies as far as the world is concerned, and yet he uses us. And here's the thing. Notice Paul says, we are bold to speak to you the gospel of God. He's our God, and it's the gospel of God. The gospel of God means it's his gospel. It's his gospel. Right? It's It's his plan of salvation. It's his good news for sinners. It's his way that men are reconciled to him. And Paul will call it the gospel of God two more times in this chapter and three more times in other epistles. And this was to counter those who were bringing the gospel of man. Gospel of man. And you can hear the gospel of man in many churches right now where man is exalted and his temporal needs are the absolute focus where man's works are called for in order to earn favor with God, where man has to let Christ into his heart while Jesus waits patiently for him to do that, to answer the call, so to speak. So every religion or belief that say you got to do something, well, that's a false gospel. And that's man's gospel. Paul says he was bold to speak the gospel of God because he was bold in God. And God's gospel is God's word, which is perfect and flawless, as he is perfect and flawless. And his gospel is life-giving, as Peter will tell us in 1 Peter 1.23, where he says, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible. How, Peter? Through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Amen? So if we are 100% persuaded 
that God is all glorious, all powerful, and all truth. And that his gospel is man's only way to be forgiven of their sins and made right with God without violating his justice, then we can boldly share it with the lost, whether they are princes or whether they are paupers. And as the hymn writer said, we can stand up, stand up for Jesus, you soldiers of the cross. Don't be like so many Christians who are unwilling to speak up for Christ and to proclaim the only name under heaven given among men by which we can be saved. Brothers and sisters, we have the remedy. We just got to let them know. And so we see the whole, that holy boldness has a purpose, that it brings adversity, that it's in God and his gospel, and finally, Holy boldness is unshakable. And we'll see that in three words at the end of verse 2, where he says, in much conflict. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. So Paul was bold, even in much conflict. And the word conflict here means contention. And it's the Greek word agon, which comes from another Greek word, which we get the word agonize from. Uh, and agon was actually a place, uh, it was where the Greeks assembled for Olympics, the Olympics. Uh, and the idea here is, is of conflict which an athlete much engage, engages, or an athlete much engage in conflict. Uh, it's the blood, sweat, and tears of them agonizing to win the prize. Uh, and Paul is using this for the conflict that he goes through in bringing the gospel. It's the battle he fights when he brings the gospel. He said in 2 Timothy 4, I have fought the good fight. Meaning I kept forging forward, I kept preaching, I kept fulfilling the, the mission God gave me. And it wasn't easy. And you can read his resume of suffering in, in 2 Corinthians. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. So Paul had boldness in the face of opposition. He spoke up in the midst of his persecutors. He shared the gospel in trying circumstances. He said to the saints in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 8 and 9, he says, But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost. Why? For a great and effective door is open to me, and there are many adversaries. There are many adversaries. And the many adversaries didn't cause him to run out of Ephesus. No, instead, because the door of ministry was opened, he determined to stay there. You see the conflict there? You see the, the tension? Door open, adversaries. And just because the Lord opens a door for us to share the gospel, it does not mean there will not be adversaries. It does not mean there will not be persecution. We, of course, would love free and easy witnessing opportunities. Amen? Don't we want that? Wouldn't it be great if people just came to us and said, how do I get to heaven? Wouldn't that be nice? But people don't do that. We got to go. We got to talk. We got to share. Right? We, would, we don't want conflict. But sometimes it's not the case. There will be conflict. We must remember, again, the nature of the gospel and the nature of man. And that sometimes God is most glorified when we boldly share it in the midst of opposition. So God may give us the open door, but conflict may come with it to keep us trusting in him and not in ourselves. Well, let me close by asking you two questions and giving you one thought to take home with you. And the first question is this. Do you agonize 
to get the gospel to your unsaved loved ones and friends and neighbors? Do you agonize to get the gospel to people you love? Will you agonize for the sake of souls? Will you agonize for the sake of souls? Will you endure all things and even agonize so the elect would come to know Christ? Brothers and sisters, if you're confident in the gospel, then you can be bold. Then you can be bold. Again, it's not loud, it's not abrasive, it's not in your face, but you can have confidence and share freely. Then you can be bold. And if you're not that way this day, you say, that's not me right now. Pray that God would change your heart and build you up to trust him and have confidence in him and his gospel. Amen? Second question is this. Do you throw in a towel when you hit opposition for sharing the gospel? And I, listen, been there. And it's the natural response in the flesh, is it not? But let us remember who they are really persecuting when they, when they reject you or reject me. And that is they're rejecting and persecuting Christ. You see, you, you, you see, they reject us because they reject him. And when they reject us sharing with them, they're rejecting him. When Paul was on the way, on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians, right, Jesus came to him and asked him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because when you persecute my people, you persecute me. Remember, they are at war with the Lord. And you bring them the, pre- the peace treaty. Right? You're bringing them the gospel and the peace treaty, and that treaty is signed in the blood of Christ. And if they reject it, that's on them. That's on them. You've done your part. But if God uses it to draw them, they become your family. And they will worship God with you forever in glory. Amen? Now my thought is this. Remember that Christ's coming to earth was not in vain. He fulfilled the will of the Father, which was to live a holy, sinless life as a man and to atone for all the sins of all his people at the cross. And indeed, his mission was accomplished. He defeated and conquered what defeated and conquered us, sin and death and the devil. And he did it for us. And the proof that he did all those things and that sin and death and Satan can no longer in any way condemn us or hold us is the resurrection. When Christ rose from the dead, all questions, all doubts were forever answered and eradicated. He purchased righteousness and redemption and everlasting life for us. And he has already prepared a place for us in glory. So his first coming was not in vain. And here's the thing, nor will his second coming be. That he will gather his elect unto himself and he will condemn all those who do not know him and reject him. And if you're sitting here this morning and you're not in Christ, understand that your life so far has been in vain. All your achievements, all your successes, all the things you have accumulated, they're in vain. They're in vain. They won't matter in the end. Because one day you will die and all you will take with you to the day of judgment are your sins. And Christ, who is the judge, will eternally condemn you for them. But listen, your life does not have to be in vain anymore. Starting today, that could change. 
You can look to Christ and look to his cross and cry out for forgiveness of your sins. And you can plead with him for mercy today. And guess what? The scripture says he is rich. He is abundant in mercy. And and you can be given the gift of faith which will assure you that God so loved you that he sent Jesus to die for you. And it will assure you that Jesus so loved you that he did die for you and did rise again for you. And then you can have boldness in this life and you can have boldness in the day of judgment. Amen. Repent of your sins and come to Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you that Christ fulfilled his mission. Thank you that you have saved, saved us from the wrath to come and that we have life and life abundantly in Christ. Father, we pray that you would give us a, a bold spirit, a confident spirit, a trusting spirit, that not only is everything you say true, but Lord, the gospel is man's only hope and it's the hope that saved us and Lord, that we would be free to share it with others. Lord, give us confidence, take away fear, help us to take one step forward today to share with that person maybe we know for a long time but we've never told them the truth, oh God, would we do it today? Would we be bold to share? Would this church be known, Father, as a church that heralds the gospel in these walls and outside of them? Thank you that they're going out week after week sharing the gospel, Lord. May there be much fruit. And Father, for the soul sitting here today, maybe that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, Father, would you show them the vanity of their life so far and how it'll end and it'll just be brutal, but in Christ they could have life and life everlasting. And Father, you would draw them to the Savior. Would you do that for your glory's sake, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.